0: All right, just a reminder on a couple of announcements, and that is that um, Jeff Ipps is down with a group, with a pastor's conference in Brazil, started Tuesday and goes until the 21st. So that will be next Wednesday. And then a reminder on Christmas Day, regular service, regular time, 1030 and we'll have communion in that service, and it's a special uh, Christmas morning uh, service. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path, and a lamp unto my feet. Jesus prayed to the... Um, I messed up on that verse. Too much going on today. Thy word is a lamp into, uh, light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. As we prepare to study God's word this morning, let's... Uh, or this evening, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we have this time together to be refreshed and encouraged by Your Word, to sharpen our thinking, to come to understand uh, the gospel, the good news, what the good news consists of. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to think clearly about this and to uh, work our way through the Scriptures so that we can come to understand how the Scriptures define this. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Dick reminded me as we were setting up up here tonight that it's been a month since we have had... Philippians because of Thanksgiving and because of uh, my illness and everything. but uh, So finally we're back. So since it's been a month, it's hard enough for some of us to remember what we did in Bible class a week ago. But a month ago, well, I think we need a little more review, but I'm still not going to spend too much time on that. Um, I pointed out last time as we opened this study that the gospel... The word gospel is used six times in Philippians. That tells us that this is a significant aspect of the theme and the focus of, of what Paul is saying to the Philippians. And as I pointed out before, what he is uh, writing in this short four-chapter epistle is a thank you letter to them for the fact that they are financially supporting his ministry. And we learn from other passages that no other churches were doing this. But from the time he left uh, Philippi, uh, they had continued to participate. That's the word koinonia. They had continued to participate uh, in his ministry. So I think it's important to stop and think about what is the gospel. In fact, today I had uh, lunch with a couple of longtime friends of mine. Uh, both of them are believers and deacons at different uh, Baptist churches, and one one of whom is extremely well-read theologically. And so I just threw the question out there, well, what's the gospel? And then I played devil's advocate with various questions to uh, get them Thinking through some issues, because for most of us we just think well it 's pretty obvious what the gospel is: believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, and that we need to trust in Christ as Savior. Then we got off into because the other guy said, inviting Christ into your life, so we had to talk about that and a few other things so uh, it 's important to clarify uh, these particular these particular things, and I started off with a quote from John Whitmer, who was long-time professor at Dallas Seminary going back, I think, to uh, the 30s, and he was the librarian at Dallas Seminary when I was a a student there. And he wrote an article in the – or actually a book review in the 1970 Bib SAC. That's short for Bibliotheca Sacra, but we just talk in shorthand. It's Bib SAC. And in that he said, I never realized stating what the gospel is could be so difficult until I read these three articles that uh, had come out in the expository times earlier in the year. Two of the authors' names are Macquarie and Davies, and he said that they never did get around to stating what the gospel is. They spent their entire articles explaining what the gospel is not and why it is not what it is not. So, and you find that in a lot of places. And I searched through my Logos library with that question, "What is the gospel?" and did not come up with anything uh, very substantive, and came up with a lot. So I did. I just kind of skimmed through things. So we need to just ask this particular question. And I uh, last time I had a couple of other quotes, but we need to understand just some basics about what the Bible teaches about the gospel. And I pointed out that the Greek word, the noun is Evangelion, and it means good news. The E-U at the beginning of the word, the U is the Upsilon, it's pronounced like a V, and that always is a prefix for something that is good. So you might say something good about somebody at a funeral. So you would say a good word. The Greek word is logos. The EU before it means a good word. And you have a eulogy. So there are um things like that. Thanatos is death. EU at the beginning is a good death. Euthanasia. So we want to um put someone out because they're suffering too much that's the idea or a pet out because they're suffering too much so you have these these words and so evangelion is angelos is a messenger and so you have a or, or a message and you have a good message or good word or good tidings those are some of the ways that it is translated and so you have that as the noun, and then you have the verb, which is evangelizo. And evangelizo is sometimes just pre- uh, translated as preaching. Sometimes, if it's one example, it's evangelizo, preaching, and the object is Christ. But it misses the point. It's not preaching. It's proclaiming good news. So it would be proclaiming the good news about Christ. And so that that proclaiming the good news is often left out in translations, and it's just translated, especially in the King James Version, or New King James, it's often just translated as um, as preaching. And that's a different word. Pro- preaching or proclaiming is the Greek word keruso, we'll talk about that a little bit more later later on so we have various phrases though that are used we have the gospel of the kingdom which is the good news that the announcing the coming of the kingdom matthew uses that in the time period before christ is rejected by the uh, by the sanhedrin so that you that's different it's used again jesus uses it again to refer to the gospel that is the focus in the, in, in the tribulation. It's the gospel about the kingdom, the good news that the kingdom is about to come. So you have to clarify these things. You have other passages like the gospel of the grace of God, which is what we have in the church age, or the, uh, Paul talks about the gospel of your salvation in Ephesians 1.13, the good news, the content of which is salvation. Uh, gospel of peace, we'll see that at the end of Ephesians. In Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 6.15. So you have these various words, and that's what I spent a lot of time on was just going through how these words are translated in some of, the key, uh, some of the key passages. And then we'll deal some more with the issue of repent because a lot of people think that you have to repent of your sins in order to be saved. Now, I'm going to make some references to a book that came out in 2016, It is uh, a book written by someone who has the reputation of being a good theologian. He has written a very popular systematic theology. I read it when it first came out and found numerous places where there were egregious errors, uh, a failure to look at the original languages. It's written by Wayne Grudem, who is the, the president of Phoenix Seminary, Wayne Grudem has a number of theological flaws in his um, in his theology. One of which is that he is uh, he has been uh, in the Vineyard movement for at least the last 30 years. That is the third wave of the Pen- what was originally the Pentecostal movement. Then it was the second wave, is the Charismatic movement. And the third wave of the Holy Spirit was the Vineyard movement power evangelism, the Wimber-Wagner movement, went by several different names, but he's involved in that. Uh, they don't believe everybody should be baptized by the Spirit and get the gift of tongues, but that the gift of tongues are still available today. They are not normative for every believer, uh, but they basically commit many of the same fallacies of the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement. So he's got some problems, and he came out with a short book, which, according to one reviewer, seemed to have been hastily written because of a number of errors. The name of the book was uh, Five Things, Five Ways in Which the Free Grace Gospel Diminishes the Gospel." And I was not aware of this until recently, and I did have it in Lagos, and so I started looking at it, and I thought, well, this should have been answered by now by some men in the uh, free grace camp. And there have been about three or four books that have been written uh in response, one of which was called Five Ways the Free Grace Gospel Enhances the Gospel. And that has a number of chapters written by some different uh Uh, men who have written on the gospel uh, many times. So it's always good to sharpen the thinking of pastors, especially those who are younger, those who have not gone through some of the battles over these things that uh, the older guys have. And so that book is going to be the focus of our study over probably the next six or seven months in the Friday Morning Pastors group. We don't just sit around there and whine about our congregations. We study the Word and different topics in in the Word. And so we're going to talk about Grudem's chapters, and then we're going to get these men who have published articles critiquing and answering Grudem's charges, and we're going to have them uh, present their Papers to us so that we can sharpen the thinking of, of, of one another, and I'll probably allude to a couple of things tonight as we go through uh, the book of Acts in in dealing with this. And one of these is that he makes some claims that that you have to repent of your sins in order to believe the gospel. That that's it's it's more than just two sides of the same coin. And he always adds that you have to repent of your sins. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, not the least of which is most of the passages where you, I don't know, but one passage that says something related to sin, and that's not talking about getting justified. So it's this kind of thing that confuses a lot of people because they've heard so many people say you have to repent and believe, and that is because these teachers have never really, really gotten down and understood the content of some of these difficult passages. Mark one fifteen, for example, says the time is fulfilled. And, and this is what John the Baptist says. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, you have to understand that the gospel that Mark's talking about there is not the gospel of the church age. It's the gospel of the kingdom that was what John the Baptist, Jesus and his disciples were all proclaiming during the first part of his ministry before he was completely rejected by the leadership of the um, of, of the Pharisees saying that he cast out demons in the power of Satan. So uh there's just you you have phrases like the kingdom of God, they misunderstand that. They misunderstand repent. They misunderstand that that's the king, the, the gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel for the church age, many things like that. So these things all muddy the water for a lot of people. And it's no wonder people have trouble articulating what the gospel is. So all of that just by way of review sort of summarizes the first uh, six points. The seventh point is that most frequently among many who might be lordship as well as free grace gospel advocates, the issue, the question is really what must be believed in order to have everlasting life, eternal life, or the very basics that must be explained in evangelism. What are we communicating when we want somebody to understand how to have everlasting life? So it's, it's important to look at these, these particular topics. So the eighth point is that this word group is used with only rare exceptions in the New Testament to include uh, the life as part of the content of the gospel, the life, the substitutionary payment for sins, and the resurrection of Christ as well as the implications of those events for the one one who believes. So that when we come to look at the gospel and the way it's presented in the scripture, is that there are many facets, many elements that one could focus on in the presentation of the gospel but not all of them are necessarily stated in any one place so that one does not have to have a theolo- theology degree to understand the hypostatic union to understand the deity of Christ and why Christ uh, can die, how Christ can die for our sins and he maintains his deity you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to grasp things. Remember, a spiritually dead person is a natural man who cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually appraised, are spiritually discerned. So that we can't expect an unbeliever to ha- understand theological uh, nuances as a spiritually dead person. So we're presenting the the hope. That you can be saved. You can have eternal life, and Jesus Christ is the one who provided that. And there may be different aspects of that work on the cross that are particularly significant to the person that you're talking to. So we'll get into that as we go along. So that's, that's the idea. It's that, that we're going to look at these different passages to see how they are handled. Now, the ninth point is that just as the sin problem is complex involving the violation of God's perfect righteousness, the solution to which is imputation of righteousness, so that may be part of how you present the gospel, Uh, it may be that you're focusing on the issue of Jesus' offer of life, that he says, I came to give life and to give it abundantly, And so you're focusing on life as opposed to eternal death or condemnation, Um, maybe on the worthlessness of our righteousness, on how we gain righteousness. So the solution is expressed through various aspects of of Christ's work on the cross related to imputation, related to regeneration, related to being given uh, eternal life. Uh, We're redeemed, we're justified. Uh, and so the presentation of the gospel may focus on forgiveness of sins. It may focus on justification, like Galatians 2.15 just focuses on we are just not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So it focuses on that aspect of the good news. All of these are different aspects, and they don't all have to be presented to present the good news. And they are not necessarily all presented when we look at the examples in the scripture the tenth point i made was that dispensationally in terms of different periods of god's administration of history there are different emphases people always say well how are those people in the old testament saved and unfortunately when uh Schofield wrote his notes on dealing with the Mosaic law in relation to salvation he said in the Old Testament you're saved by the law no that's not right you, nobody was ever saved by the law they were saved by believing the promise of God and so there are those kinds of errors that often have to be uh, be dealt with in the Old Testament there's the anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promise that he would provide Uh, uh, salvation from spiritual death through the seed of the woman. And in the opening years of Jesus' ministry, the first couple of years, the message was related to his coming with the offer of the kingdom. So it was related to the gospel of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that word repent meant to turn. And there are two different words that are used. There's metanoia, which has to do with meta is after, noia is mind. It's thinking again or changing your mind. And that was another thing in in this book that Grudem wrote. He says that that repentance does not mean, as the free grace gospel guys say, uh, just to change your mind. And then he goes through uh, various things where you look it up in BDAG and that's not even a meaning. Well, I looked up, uh, the noun, uh, today. First thing that it said was change of mind. So I don't know what he's looking at. He's not looking at what he should be looking at. I know that's for sure. But that's a problem that a lot of people have. They think that repentance, because it's, if you look in an English dictionary, and you look up the word repent, it says remorse. But that's not what metanoia means in in the Greek. It means to change your mind. It doesn't mean anything about remorse. God doesn't care how remorseful we are over our sin, either before we're saved or after we're saved. The issue is the cross, not how we feel. So we have to take those things into account. And when is the person using the term is it during the life of Christ before the cross Jesus said to Mary I mean excuse me Martha and he said I am the way the truth he said I am the resurrection of the life he who believes in me though he were dead yet shall he live does that mention anything about the cross had the cross happened yet no so we have to make those kinds of distinctions and just careful focus on the on the context okay fifth point or eleventh point was what is the focus of the gospel and as much as we look for some sort of boilerplate in the new testament there isn't one but paul does make the statement in 1 corinthians 2:2 2, 2, i determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. That was the most important part of his message, was who Jesus Christ is and that he was crucified. It is his crucifixion on the cross when he pays the penalty for sin. And as you've heard me say many, many times in the communion service, when Jesus finishes paying the penalty of sin, He says, using the perfect tense form of teleo, telestai. he says, it is finished. It is completed. It has already been completed. The perfect tense indicates past completed action. So from the time the speaker says it, he is saying this has already been completed before I say this. It's done and over with. So before Jesus ever died physically, he said he had paid the penalty for sin. So the sin penalty is paid for before he dies physically and before he is resurrected. So those two aspects don't play a part in the payment of the redemptive price. That doesn't mean they're not important. It just means they're not paying the redemptive price. And so the focal point is for salvation is that Christ has paid the penalty and we accept his payment in our place and we trust in the sufficiency of his death so then i want to talk a little bit about the gospel in the old testament and then the gospel in the new testament writings acts through jude not in the um not in the four uh, four gospels so in the old testament There is a word, a Hebrew word that is translated good news. And this is the, the Hebrew word, uh, basar. And it means to publish good tidings or bear good tidings, to preach, to show forth. Actually, in a lot of these dictionaries, when they give you various English words, those are the words that it's translated with usually. They're not real, it's rare that they're defining the term. The, when they list words, especially the uh, the less academic uh, lexicons they 're really just listing words that are used, commonly used to translate translate the word and in the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the old testament they they define it they say it me, it means to bring news, to bring good news, or to announce something that 's what Basar means. So this word, though, when it is translated by the rabbis into the Greek of the Septuagint, they use our two words, evangelizo, the verb, or evangelion, the noun. It is used for just announcing something that's good, something's worth celebrating. And when the Philistines defeat Saul and and Saul has died, then they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of, uh, of the Philistines to proclaim it. There's the word, basar, to proclaim the good news uh, in the temple of their idols and among the people. So it's just for any kind of positive announcement. Uh, David used this when he uh receiving news of Saul's death. Uh, when someone told me, he said, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news. David didn't react like that Amalekite thought he would react. He thought that he would curry favor with David because he claimed to have been the one to kill Saul, which was a lie. Saul had fallen on his sword. And uh, so David says he thought he would bring Basar. Good news to me. It's used in a spiritual sense in Psalm 49, 40, verse 9. And it is translated in the New King James as, "...I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly." Basar is translated as with the Greek verb evangelizo in the Septuagint. In Isaiah 52.7, we have the statement, "...how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news." Evangelizo is how it's translated in the Greek Septuagint. It's basar in the Hebrew. Uh, Who proclaims peace. That's what the good news is. It's proclaiming peace. Glad tidings of good things. Who proclaims salvation and who says to Zion, your God reigns. A parallel, almost identically worded verse is found in Nahum 115. Behold, on the mountains... The feet of him who brings good tidings, basar, evangelizo, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is then quoted in Romans ten fifteen, how, where Paul says, How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, evangelizo, and there he is just making an a- application or inference from the passage that we just looked at in Isaiah. It means spiritual good news in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. This is always one of the most fascinating passages for me, and it, it shows how the Lord clearly understood his mission at the first coming, and it also shows that when you look at prophetic books, that they scrunch together uh, events that may be thousands of years apart. And so Jesus is reading in the temple. This is recorded in Luke 4, 18 to 20. He's reading in the temple in Nazareth. He shows up on the very day that this was the parasha, that is the scripture reading for that day. He knows that's what the scripture reading is, and he's going to make a point about himself when he reads it. Uh, The passage in Isaiah reads, all three verses, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to what? preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now Isaiah goes on and says, and the day of vengeance of our God, but between the word Lord and the word and, between the comma and the empty space, is the difference between Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in A.D. 33, and the time that the Lord returns at the end of the tribulation. So that's at least a almost a 2,000-year gap by now. So he goes on, and what he is saying about the day of vengeance of our God, that's the tribulation, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. This is what comes at the end of the tribulation. So when Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads the passage, he stopped at the middle of verse 2, Isaiah 61, 2, and he, he reads all the way down, and then he reads, "...to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. They knew what he was doing, that he was claiming this was about him and that this was fulfilled in their their presence on that very day. And uh, the fact that um, they reacted to it is an indication that they clearly understood what he was doing. So here we have these examples from the Old Testament about proclaiming good news that's why when you come to the New Testament in the in Matthew, Mark and Luke, and you read about the Gospel of the kingdom in the message of John the Baptist, nobody's asking the question well what's that?" nobody's asking well what's this gospel what's this evangel evangelion. What is this good news? They know the Old Testament scriptures uh, prophesy about the one who will come and the, the good tidings of that. So now what I want to do is just kind of walk us through some key passages where These two words, evangelion for gospel, the noun, and evangelizo, the verb, to proclaim good news, are used because if it's the passage says that Peter proclaimed good news, do we have any hints in the passage as to what the content of the message was? How did he present the good news? What was the focus of the good news? So I want to start... First, by just reminding you of a couple of key gospel statements. The word evangelion is not used. Evangelizo is not used. But they are statements about what someone must do to be saved, to have everlasting life, uh, to move from death to life. And I just want to make a couple of points there. I'm not going to drill down on this in detail until later on. So we have our passage, John 3.16. I want you to turn to John 3.16. These three verses you should have underlined in your Bible. That would make it easy for you to find them. They're part of a conversation. The conversation began back in verse 1 when Jesus has a night meeting with Nicodemus, who is called a ruler of the Jews. What is interesting is his name really seems not to be a personal name, but to be a title for someone who is a, a ruler of the people. And he is considered to be a great teacher. There is a Jewish tradition that he was one of the wealthiest rabbis in Jerusalem and he was the teacher of teachers in Jerusalem, and that he died in poverty because after his faith became known, he was he was rejected by his people. I don't know how that is true. That is simply a uh, I find an interesting tradition uh, about this man. So Jesus comes to him, and there there is this discussion then about what must he do to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus says in verse 3, "...most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." So being born again is a prerequisite. And so Jesus begins to ask him about that, and and, uh, Nicodemus asks questions. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born And so Jesus then talks about, uh, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. Now, there are various interpretations of the passage. I don't want to get into all of those. I believe that being born of water relates to physical birth, and born of the Spirit relates to the second birth, the rebirth, or regeneration. And because he explains it in verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, in this point, see, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. There's no mention of sin. There's no mention of uh, lack of righteousness. There's no mention of imputation of righteousness or justification by faith. There's no mention of the resurrection or the crucifixion because that hasn't happened yet. So, But he's pointing out another dimension of what Christ accomplishes on the cross. So as you read further down, he is explaining why he can talk about these things. And he, he makes the point in verse 12, he says, "'If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things?' In other words, if I can tell you things that you can check out to validate what I'm saying, uh, and you don't believe me, then, then why would you believe me when I tell you about spiritual things? And then Jesus says, I mean, then Jesus says in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So he's saying, I can tell you these things because I came from heaven... And I have the knowledge. And then we have a very interesting verse that I don't find too many people focus on in asking the questions about faith, how much faith, how little faith, what is faith, how, how long you need to believe, anything like that. And Jesus uses the illustration of the punishment of the fiery f- serpents in Numbers. And in, um, in Numbers twenty one nine we have that episode where the Israelites are once again rebellious and disobedient, so God sends this plague of serpents, fiery serp- serpents, and there's debate as to whether that's talking about they were some sort of special, they had some sort of special appearance of burning, or whether their bite burned so much, but it was a deadly bite, they're deadly vipers. And God told Moses that when Moses called out to God to save the people, God said what you need to do is you need to build a pole like in the shape at the top of a cross and wrap a bronze image of the serpent on the top. And those who look at it will be healed. Well, I can hear some people now. Well, how long do they have to look at it? Do they have to keep looking at it? And if they stop, they, they get sick again. You know, that'd be the Arminian. You lose your salvation if you stop having faith. Um, well, is God going to give me the ability to look at it? That would be the five-point Calvinist. He just says, look at it. It's an issue of volition. And he, you, you don't have to look look at it. The fact that you looked at it, was evidence that you believed that what you were told was true, and if you looked at it, you would be healed. So it's a very simple analogy that you look for a nanosecond to 60 seconds. It doesn't say how long, because all it matters is that you look, no matter how brief, at that bronze serpent, and you're healed. It's called Grace. So that to me is, is an important statement that has to, it comes right at the beginning of our block of verses that are so important. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's verse 15. And that is repeated again in verse 16. Whoever believes in him, and in the Greek, it's the verb pistuo ace auton. Ace is the preposition in or on. It could be translated either way, or that. See, we, you get in, people who just know English and they say, well, there's a difference between believing in Jesus and believing that Jesus. No, there isn't. Either one is a legitimate translation of this phrase, pistuo ace auton. And believing that Jesus is, as many Greek scholars have pointed out, it has the same meaning as believing in Jesus, believing that Jesus. Don't, don't try to make sophomoric arguments about this. So verse 16 we read, For God, this is an explanation, an explanation of what Jesus has been saying up to this point. But what's interesting is, that as you read and see my New King James Bible is a red letter Bible and that almost everything that is said from three on except for four and nine are in red letters. It goes all the way in the red letters down to verse 21. But see at some point before verse 21 Jesus stops talking and John's talking. But nobody can tell where that happens, because John, as a young, impressionable adolescent, was very close to Jesus, and he learned to think and talk like Jesus did—not in a wrong way, but just that he's he's impressed by his master, by his Lord. And so, somewhere in here, it, 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 it's he quits talking about it's quits quoting Jesus, and he's explaining something himself. I think it's with verse 16. But who am I? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I think this is John talking. He's explaining why Jesus said what he said to Nicodemus. That whoever, what? Believes in him. Now, if all you had was John 3.16, would you get the idea that you needed to repent from your sin? It's not there. Not only is it not there, But the word repent is not used in the gospel of John at all. Now, when you come to the end of the gospel of John, where where it says, and these, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, that focal point of those two verses is on life. Focal point here is on life, but nowhere if John is written to so that you can re, understand these signs and that uh, if you understand these signs, you recognize that you need to believe in Jesus, nowhere in go- the gospel that is telling you how to be saved is the word repent used at all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, that's not the focal point of the first coming, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth in not, or who does not believe, is already condemned. Why? You're born condemned. You're born spiritually dead, so you're under condemnation. And why why do you stay that way? Because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I like this verse very much because three times it uses the word believe. It doesn't say he who invites Jesus into your life, he who invites Jesus into your heart. It doesn't say any of the many different Ways people try to present the gospel without using biblical terminology. In the Greek text I was using today, in accordance, the verb pistuo is used 98 times. Now, there, because of textual variance in different places, uh, some have only 96 times. So I always say it's more than 95. 96 is more than 95, 98 is more than 95, it doesn't get confusing. But it's all about believing. And I don't know why people don't use that word. It's a very good word. But a lot of people have trouble with it because, as one of my friends said today, and many others have said, and is a very important point, and one that Grudem also has a problem with, is the idea that, well, belief, people just think that means intellectual assent. And I said, well, wait a minute. Let's talk about that a minute. With what organ do you believe? Do you believe with your heart? Do you believe with your kidneys? Do you believe with your brain? You believe with your brain. So it is intellectual. You understand what John 3.16 says. You have read it. You have been told it. And you say, what that says is, if I believe in him, I'll have everlasting life. Okay? So you have to understand it. You understand it with your mind. So it is intellectual and assent. Assent means to agree that something is true. Now, I've taught this before because you have to make sure that the, under, that the thing you say is true is the salvific statement. I believe Darwin said that we all evolved from monkeys. Is that the same as saying, I believe we all evolved from d- monkeys? See there are a lot of people who believe the Bible says that we have to believe in Jesus to be saved. But that's not the same as saying I believe Jesus died for me and I'm trusting in him for my salvation. The proposition is a personal proposition. But that doesn't mean it's any less assent. I'm agreeing that it is true that Jesus died and paid the penalty for my sins. And I'm trusting in him alone. That's the key is how you are stating what you believe. Now, you can make it, oh, it's just some sort of intellectual philosophical abstraction, but then you've, you've taken, you've got the wrong proposition you're believing. So it's, it is. It's intellectual assent, but that sounds so cold. It it sounds so impersonal. Well, the thing is, the, the Bible, and I went back and did this a couple of days ago. I looked for, for the phrase propositional truth, and I just ran a search through my whole library on Logos, and it came up you know, hundreds of times, and most of the places it came up were in theologies or theological articles that were talking about the nature of the Bible. And I remember when I was in college, And I was reading books about how we got the Word of God and books on the uh, inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and I kept running across that phrase, and I sort of had a vague notion like most of you probably do of what that means, but that's a very technical phrase. What it is saying is that it is, the Bible is filled with propositions that are true. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken a philosophy course, but a proposition is a very technical term. A proposition is another way of talking about a declarative sentence. So when if you make the statement, John just left and he's on the way to the store, that's either true or false. A proposition is a statement of reality that can be verified or falsified. It's either true or false. Did John go to the store yet? Is that true or false? It's neither. It's a question. A question is not true or false. It's just a question. John, go to the store. See, that's a command. Is it true? Commands are neither true nor false. They're commands. So a propositional truth means that the Bible is filled with statements That are either true or false. And if they're true, you need to believe them. So we have to believe it because it's true. So that is why you have these, these statements. Sometimes when people hear someone like me say, well, it just, it is a proposition. Well, we don't know Jesus directly in the scriptures. We only know the propositions that John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and Peter put down in the scripture. And when we believe they're true, then we have a personal relationship with Jesus. But a personal relationship with Jesus doesn't get you to heaven. That's another false gospel. Can you name anybody in the Scripture has a really close personal relationship with Jesus and is roasting in the lake of fire? Or he's in uh, torments right now? Judith. Judith had a... Day by day, walk with Jesus. But he wasn't ever saved. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So it's important to understand these things, that that by using this highly technical vocabulary, it doesn't depersonalize. Some people think that it does. But we only know the person of Jesus through the statements of Scripture, now, that's important when you're talking about what the critique that Grudem makes because remember, Grudem's a vineyard guy, which means he's got mysticism in his epistemology. And so he thinks he has a personal relationship before he even knows the propositions. So he's just, he's just really con- confused. But he's, cons- I mean, you know, I was talking to Jim about this the other day because Jim thought when this so he didn't know who Grudem was. And when the, um, when that systematic theology came out, it was translated into Russian. And if you're a missionary in Ukraine, you're desperate for anything that's been translated into Russian. So he got the English, and he starts reading through it. And he said, oh, my, I'm going to have to do a lot of warning about this if I have the students read it, because there's just a lot of problems. And unfortunately, this book, because of the PR from the publisher, I've got a lot of press, and I know of a lot of seminaries that use that as a systematic theology as a textbook. But it, it just, he, he's not, in my opinion, I've never been impressed with his thinking except in, in one or two areas. So, anyway, so this is the focal point of, of what the gospel says we must believe to be saved. In John 20, 30, and 31, We read, and I quote John 30, because when if we just quote John 20, 31, these are written that you might believe. These what? These verses? These words? What's the these that are written? Well, you have to go back to the first part of the sentence, because 20, 30 to 31 is all one sentence. And we read, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Well, what happened just prior to this? Thomas had said, Well, I'm not going to believe that he rose from the dead until I can can feel the wounds and put my hand in his side. Then a little while later, Jesus showed up and said, Okay, I heard you, Thomas. See, put your hand here. Feel the wounds. Feel the side. Thomas says, I don't need to. I believe. And so... Then John says, and truly Jesus did many other signs. Other signs than what? Than the resurrection. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. What was, what was not written in the book? Other signs. So the these refers to signs, but these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John MacArthur is a big lordship gospel advocate, says that back in John 2 when Jesus did many signs, that many people believed on his name, Pistuo auton. many people believed on his name. But John MacArthur says it wasn't a saving faith because Jesus didn't trust himself to him. I've always wanted to say, John, do you trust every person who says they're a Christian? You trust them with your life? You trust them with your money? No, you don't. Just because they're saved doesn't mean they're trustworthy. But that's what he says. He says you can have a faith in Jesus that is not saving because it's based on signs. You get down to John 20, 31, it's these signs. So you know, this is a big flaw in the Lordship gospel presentation. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, it's an instrumental participle, by believing you may have life in his name. Nowhere does it mention repentance. The issue is believing, trusting in the the promises of Scripture related to salvation. So, Second point: all of that was just some of the statements that are in the Gospels. Just so we have that as a starting point, then we have statements in the Acts from Acts, which is historical. Always remember this when you're interpreting a narrative: that what they did is not necessarily what we're supposed to do. It's simply telling you what they did. It's you know, and when you're describing what happened. It's not prescribing what happened. Okay? That's very important to always understand that. So Acts is telling us what they did. But what's important is when, the, when in Acts it talks about them uh, giving the gospel, proclaiming the good news, what is it that they proclaimed? Because remember, the Holy Spirit is in breathing out Acts. He's inspiring Acts so that what is recorded is accurate. But if they lie, then it's still accurately recording the lie. But that gets us off into another thing. So, uh, if you I did a search using Accordance today on um, "evangelium" or "evangelizo," so that it would start listing all the places where either one of those words were used from the beginning of Acts to the to the end of Jude. So, in Acts five forty two, that's the first use. Uh, of the verb, but we need a little context. So you might want to turn to Acts chapter five, so that we can pick up some of this, uh, some of this particular context. Acts five. Um, what's going on here? Okay. Well, Acts five starts off with uh, two early church liars, and so the beginning of this. Um, this chapter is talking about Ananias and Sapphira and it wasn't that what they did was wrong they sold their property and they kept some back and they gave the rest to the church but they claimed that they gave all of it to the church and it's interesting when you go through the scriptures that when there's a god is making a new movement that there's usually a bunch of people who die if they do it wrong at the beginning of the new movement you had uh, when Moses is coming down from mount sinai He has the tablets, and while he was up there, the people were having an orgy. And when he realizes that, he gets mad, and he throws the tablets down, and he calls for all the Levites who were standing on his side to join him, and they do, and then they go through the the crowd, and they kill thousands. Other places, when God is starting something new and people disobey him, then he wants to make them understand. No, I'm serious about this. It's changing, and you're going to do it the right way. And But after that, it, it doesn't go on like that. So you have the growth of the church that takes place after this, down in verse 14, that verse 12 says, "...to the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they're all with one accord in Solomon's porch, which is in the temple." Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So they had the respect from the people, even if they weren't believing. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, uh, added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I wanted to put that up there because notice it doesn't say, and the repentant. Sometimes you have to look at what's not said. It doesn't say, and the repentant were increasingly added to the Lord. And so you have so many people who think that repentance is necessarily part of the gospel, and it's not. I just wanted to point that out. Then we skip down to verse 20, and when you, we get down to verse 20, the uh, Sadducees have had a, a meltdown over this, and they have uh, gone to arrest the apostles and put them in prison in verse 18, but an An angel of the Lord showed up and set them all free, that all of the disciples set them free, opened the prison doors, and gave them an order. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That, it doesn't use the word evangelion, but that's what the good news is. It's the words about this this life. What life? The life that Jesus promised. And so verse 21 says, and when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. I find it fascinating. Several times you'll see this. They do something, then they go out and they teach. They didn't have an evangelistic preaching. They taught. They opened up the scriptures and explained them. They uh, taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council, that's the Sanhedrin together, with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And, of course, the, the prison is going to be uh, uh, discovered to be empty when they go to look for the, uh, the apostles. Then down in um, verse 30, when we see a message that they are giving, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men, in verse 29, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. So he's got the crucifixion in there. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. The raising up of Jesus is his resurrection. And then verse 31, Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior. So that's part of their presentation of of the gospel. I don't know that I would use that terminology. I don't think I've ever talked about the ascension and session of Christ in explaining the gospel to someone. Uh, God has exalted to his right hand a prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is really an important concept here. Here you have the noun uh, repentance, which is metanoia, And it's not repentance from sin. It doesn't say to give repentance to sin. But constantly I find authors like Grudem and others just see see, it says repentance of sin. No, it doesn't. Two or three times in his book he'll quote a verse that never mentions sin. It just has repentance. And they assume that that must mean repentance of sin. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy 30, this is a, a message that is tailored to Jews. Because remember, there is still, I believe, a still a secondary offer of the millennium, of the kingdom. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 and 3, God says, when you have been scattered to all the nations, that when you turn to me, now it's not the word repent, it's the word turn, but those words are, are synonymous. When you turn back to me, then I will gather from all the nations on the earth, and I will bring you back to the land. So this is nuanced language for with a gospel for the Jews based on Deuteronomy 30. They're being told, God exalted Christ to the right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice the focal point of this expression is he's got the crucifixion, he's got the resurrection, and he's got an emphasis on forgiveness of sins. And he, then he goes on and says, we were all witnesses to these things. Then we go on to Acts 5.42, which is a passage where, where uh, proclaiming the good news, evangelizo, is used there at the end of 42. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease what? Teaching and evangelizo, teaching and evangelizing, teaching and proclaiming the good news about Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Uh, that is my translation of it. But the, see, the New King James, which is below, says daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. See how you miss the point when it translates evangelizo as preaching. It means to proclaim the good news. They just leave good news out of it. They could have said preaching, did not cease teaching and evangelizing, uh, related to Jesus as the Christ, but they don't do that. Okay, well, we'll stop here tonight. And next time we're going to come back and we're going to look at Acts 8. And then we're going to look at Acts 15. Act- actually, start with Acts 10 and 11 with Peter going to Cornelius. And then from Peter and Cornelius, we're going to go to, uh, Acts 15. And there we see very good informative things that, and the way they say things related to Uh, the Proclamation of Good News. So we'll be back on that next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Help us to recognize the importance of being clear in our gospel presentation, telling people who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us and what is required of us, which is to believe Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He died on the cross for our sins, and by believing in him, we have... Forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, justification, all kinds of things. We don't need to go through everything, but we frequently do more than present more than one. So Father, help us just to sharpen our thinking that we might do the best we can in clarifying the gospel to those we talk to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.